Hi, hello, and welcome to Sola Sisters. I'm Erica. And I'm Kerr. And today we're talking about if we can trust our Bible and why knowing the Bible is essential. Before we get started, though, I know that the first two weeks of 2021 have been really difficult for a lot of people, emotionally, Mm -hmm. spiritually, just a lot. So I wanted to offer three words of encouragement that are a little controversial, (laughs) but they are God is sovereign. And I know that on my social medias, when I would see other Christians post that, there would be a lot of backlash or on Twitter, there would be a lot of backlash of like, you're just trying to disregard everybody who's gone through something serious or anyone who's struggling or don't try to minimize the pain by bringing religion into it, all these things. And I'm, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to diminish pain. I'm not trying to say you don't have a right to be concerned. Yeah. I'm not trying to say that what is happening isn't scary. Mm-hmm. But I am saying that you don't need to be scared because God is sovereign. Yes. And there is no need. A scripture commands us not to be anxious. And so just don't. Like, just don't. <laughs> and that's so much easier said than done. So much easier because I fall prey to it as well. Mm-hmm. I fall prey to having my concern be elevated to anxiousness and thinking about, oh my gosh, what's going to happen if this happens and this and this and this. And that, that doesn't matter. What matters is that we stand firm on truth and we preach the gospel. Yes. And I can wonder about like what that's going to look like in the future, but I know that that's what I'm called to do. And that's what every Christian is called to do is preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. And especially into a world that, that hates God. The world hating God is nothing new. Yes. So this might be new for us in the way that it's being propagated, But it's not new in the realm of Christianity, and it's very on-brand for the world. (laughs) So I guess take that for what it's worth. Um, A way to remember that God is sovereign is to read your Bible. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be doing that on, well, I mean, you should do that every day. But on Saturday, January 16th, I'm doing a social media fast. And every time I'm tempted to go on social media, I'm going to be reading my Bible. So my goal is to get through First and Second Peter on Saturday. And I'd really love it. And I'd invite you guys and uh, welcome you guys to do that with me. And if you're listening to this after the 16th or on the 16th, you didn't miss it. I mean, you can do a social media fast whenever you want and read your Bible whenever you want. Mm-hmm. And so really what I would encourage you guys to do is whatever tomorrow is for you guys, whatever your tomorrow is, do a social media fast and read your Bible whenever you're tempted and pray whenever you're tempted to go on social yes. media and fill yourself with what the Word of God says and not just with the Bible verse that might be shared on social media because the Word is so much more powerful than limiting it to just learning about it on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever else you're on. So that's my little thing for you guys. Now I'm going to tell a story relating to the podcast episode about a Christian in the fourth century, and then we'll get on with it. So 
During the last great persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire, early in the 4th century, a believer in Sicily was brought before the governor. He was charged with possessing a copy of the Gospels. Where did these come from? asked the judge, pointing to the books. Did you bring them from your home? I have no home, as my Lord Jesus knows. Pointing at the Gospels, the judge said, Read them. The Christian opened the Gospels and read, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He turned to another place and read again, If any man may come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That was too much. The judge ordered his prisoner away, to death. Roman officials came to understand that to get rid of the widespread of Christianity, that meant there must be a destruction of scriptures. The earlier martyrs of Christianity were deeply moved to defend and stand firm on the truth of Scripture, even unto death. How could they be so sure it was truth, and how can we trust our Bibles today? So before we get into why we can trust the Bible, we're going to talk about common myths that so many people believe surrounding like the canonization of scripture um like all these ideas that people just have come up with on their own that have no evidence to back them so myth number one um a lot of scholars believe that the canonization of scripture so understanding which books were God breathed, which ones were Theonostas, was chaotic until the fourth or fifth century. That no one knew what to read, that there were massive disagreements amongst believers, that everyone had their own version of the Bible until a church council came along and fixed it all. There's also ideas that Constantine forced his own books onto the church. And there's a few scholars that say it was a theological battleground between the winners and the losers, the oppressor and the oppressed. And the winners became the canon and suppressed all other books that were circulating at the time. However, there's no evidence for any of this. In fact, the... Um, there were 22 of the 27 New Testament books that we have in our Bibles today were counted as scripture at the latest by the second century and then through the councils as well. So these, the core of the New Testament existed and was known and was upheld as early as the second, or I'm sorry, as late as the second century. And then as time went on, there were, um, just more confirmation of what books were consistent with overall theme of the Old Testament and New Testament and what books were just like, what the heck are these people talking about? This doesn't make any sense. We don't need this. Myth number two. I just think this one is so funny. (laughs) But there's this common idea that all the authors within the Bible went under some sort of trance by the spirit to remove their own personalities from whatever they were writing in order that the spirit may overtake them in in order for the letter or part of the Bible that they were writing could be considered gods. However, this idea is pagan. (laughs) This is consistent with the idea of automatic writing 
And if you know anything about automatic writing, it's a pagan practice. It's the idea that you allow a spirit to overtake you so you can just close your eyes and just write how you feel or just think whatever thoughts you want and write it down kind of thing. All of that idea is pagan and God's not pagan. (laughs) So we can't believe this idea of transmission because it's inconsistent with all of God's word. In order to write down God's word, why would God use an inconsistent way that was counterintuitive to what scripture itself had within it? It just doesn't make any sense that the authors would have to do that. (laughs) Well, then why also would all of the New Testament books and the Old Testament books be so different in like the tones so like yes even Mm -hmm. paul's letters from when he was younger to when he gets older they all kind of they're all different because Mm -hmm. as he gets older he gets a little bit more sassy (laughs) so if it was just like just the spirit and there's no personality in it then you would have to try to figure out why some of the writings were a little bit different right which is why like um scholars I believe the terminology they would use is an organic view of inspiration. Um, At least that's what Michael Kruger calls it. And he, he, I basically use his website for all the information I'm telling you guys. So just go to Cannon Fodder and it's the best thing in the world and just read everything and it's awesome. But anyway, that's what he calls it. And he calls it that because it's like a, it's a combination of the person's background, personality, and the spirit intervening through the process of writing down God's word, which is why, like, you have Paul's background in some of the stories, in some of the letters, and you can see throughout scripture, too, that there's there's almost, like, these two strands throughout scripture that run parallel to each other. This is what I mean. So, like, in our last episode, we talked about Psalm 13. In the first four verses, you see David crying out to God, of like agony and frustration and things that were not true about God. So we we know that's not true because God is always with his people. What God says about himself is true about himself. However, all of scripture is inspired by God. So we have this idea throughout scripture that there is the struggling with sin, the process of mortifying your own thoughts and processes throughout um, whatever circumstances you're in, which is why like you see Paul pray for his thorn to be removed from his side and God never removes it. Does that mean God's inconsistent with his own character? No, because that thorn, whatever it was, helped Paul pursue to preach the gospel even more. So I hope that makes sense what I'm trying to say. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I know what you're trying to say. Okay, so yeah. So... uh, don't believe that people went under some sort of trance because that's pagan. God's not pagan. And God used his people. He used their sinful personalities to write down his word because God always uses sinful people, no matter what. Then myth number three is about textual variance. And I know that's a really technical term. It just means like errors in writing. Just like when you were in grade school and you had to write a rough draft and then you had to edit all your papers that editing was taking out all of the errors within that text. So that's what we mean when we say textual variance is the errors within whatever book you're reading. 
but a lot a lot of college professors will try to throw this scary thing out at you. They'll say something along the lines of, there are nearly 400,000 textual variants within the New Testament, meaning errors. There are 400,000 errors within the New Testament. That's more errors than there are words in the New Testament. That sounds scary. That sounds like, oh crap, maybe we shouldn't trust this. Maybe this is something we need to actually consider. And maybe this isn't God's breathe because God is always right. So why would there be errors within his word? And just so you know, you're not the first one to ever think that if you ever think that. (laughs) People have been going through that process since they were written down. (laughs) But here's the thing. We have over, I believe the number is near... um, 5,900 copies of the New Testament. 5,900 copies of the New Testament. Granted, it's not like we have complete copies. It's like fragments, and we keep finding more fragments that just continue to confirm what we already have written. And like, for example, we have this early copy of the Gospel of John. It's called the P66, and it is the same exact version of the Gospel of John that we have today. So whenever people talk about variants, the majority of variants in, let's say the number is actually 400,000 textual variants within the New Testament. The majority of those variants are spelling errors, grammatical errors, spatial errors, and a lot of manuscripts that we have, they have almost like a footnote situation where they, if someone notice an error within a manuscript, they'll put like a little mark, like maybe like a little asterisk or something like that. And then off to the side of that paper, they'll correct themselves, editing what they have. And people are going to hear this and they're going to hear, isn't that adding to God's word? Isn't that removing from God's word? No, it's not. Because you need people to translate the word. You need people to transmit the word so that others can understand it. And that process means that we have to go through spelling errors and grammatical errors and correct all these seemingly minuscule errors, but these nonetheless need to be corrected. None of these variants change the content of any of the letters that we have. So you can know that even if it's something along the lines of um, a different name between manuscripts or something, it does not change the content of the Bible. It doesn't change... God's character, and it doesn't change the work that he has done for humanity. So all that to say is textual variance is a flawed argument, and if someone uses that against you, it doesn't hold up. It doesn't change anything that we believe about the Bible, because I've noticed this throughout a lot of different colleges. A lot of colleges are secular, so of course they're going to use this at you. They're they're going to call you crazy for believing that the Bible is supernaturally inspired by God. But that is the Christian argument. We're being consistent with our argument. If we were to say that, well, it was written by man and then God came along one day and like magically put a spell on it and put it, made it his word or whatever... That's an inconsistent argument. That's not our argument. And that's what skeptics try to say. But our argument is that from the moment those words were written down, they were from God. So you're not crazy for being consistent that God's word was supernaturally inspired by him for people to know him from the beginning. So don't let people tell you you're crazy. So yeah, I think those are 
all the myths I got. Yeah, so like what Kurt was saying in the beginning was a lot of people attribute the canon to being something like the Council of Nicaea or Constantine or Athanasius, and none of those are true. There wasn't like a council that sat down or one guy that just said, okay, these are the 66 books that we're going to read, get on board or get out. That's not how it happened. So there were some criteria that we think some of the churches would have followed, though there's not any criteria that's like written down for us to reference of, okay, yeah, this is how this book made it in and this is how this one made it in. There are some criteria though that we can probably assume that they used when Mm -hmm. a lot of these manuscripts were floating and circulating around the churches. And so for the Old Testament, some of the criteria was, there's like three that I found through research and through reading some books. The first one was, did the writer claim divine inspiration? And Mm -hmm. like the last thing that Carson said was, you're not crazy if that's your argument because that's consistent. Mm -hmm. It is divinely inspired. And so this is the word of God. And so um, did the author indicate that God was speaking through them? So like in Exodus, Moses says, and God spoke all these words saying blank. Or in Joshua, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying blank. Mm -hmm. So in both circumstances, in both places of the scriptures, we see that there is divine inspiration. Yeah. I think a lot of people have a hard time with that because we have seen in history from jesus ministry all the way until modern day today like so many people claiming like god told me this or god told me that but we can rule all of those people out because we know that the canon is closed and a huge factor into that too is that all those people had private experiences with God and then started proclaiming all these things to people. So we can rule all those people out because Jesus was public. The prophets were public. There were eyewitness accounts to affirm all the things that they were saying as well. It wasn't just that they wrote this down privately in their bedroom by themselves. These were all public documents, public sayings that all of Israel would have known. So yeah, that was my two cents. Yeah, and then the second one goes along with that, with what you were saying of, was the author a genuine prophet of God? Mm -hmm. So example, 1 Samuel, uh, I think chapter 10, where Samuel writes these things on a scroll and he deposited before the Lord. He's a genuine prophet because he put it before the Lord and the Lord didn't strike him down dead. There was, (laughs) there's this trustworthiness that Samuel was a prophet, so we can trust that 1 and 2 Samuel are true and that we can we can trust who God is through reading First and Second Samuel as well. Um, and then the third one was, did the writings agree with previous doctrines? So mm-hmm. the Jews would believe that the first five books were scripture. Mm-hmm. So there was no like vetting process. They just believed Moses. Right. So anything that came after those first five books were established and used in, in the temple worship were to be put against everything that they had to make sure that there was consistency there, to make sure that they were a real prophet of God. Because I'm sure there are people claiming to to have heard from the Lord even back then mm-hmm. that really didn't. What is his name? Last name Simmons. Brian Simmons? I think so. I think you're right. I'm going to go with Brian. 
Um, <laughs> his passion translation in the Bible, that's how, that's what he says, that he had a revelation from God. That is this new revelation from God. And he had this like Holy Spirit taking him over experience is what yeah. he says. And it's like he had an out of body experience writing these new words down. And I think right. that's almost exclusively what Bethel preaches out of, or that's like a really important translation of the Bible that they use. I know at yeah. least from like watching Lindsay Davis's interviews and stuff like that since mm-hmm. she went to the supernatural school right and so it was just like these things that churches did as new writings were circulating around trying to figure out okay what do we teach and what don't we teach what do we keep and what do we disregard what I think is cool too is the manuscripts that you were talking about we have so many old testament manuscripts as well like uh, i was researching a lot of you guys know the dead sea scrolls but in 1949 there was Mm -hmm. the shepherd and he was at Qumran. i think that's how you pronounce it it's where david was fleeing from saul yeah and he found this jar and he opened it and there was like a fragment of what he believed could have been scripture so in 2017, they continued to look for caves. So, like, from 1949 to 2017, they were still looking for caves and everything around that same area. Mm-hmm. And by 2017, they found 12 caves. And filled in those caves was, like, a whole bunch of jars. And in those jars was manuscripts of the Old Testament. We have That's manuscripts cool. of every book of the new, of the Old Testament and a full manuscript, I think, of the book of Isaiah yeah. from mm-hmm. those jars. Yeah. And so that was just so cool to learn. I think the only book that wasn't in those jars was Esther. But we can trust mm-hmm. Esther because mm-hmm. the Jewish tradition trusted Esther as part of their canon. Because mm-hmm. it, it teaches them about the festivals and their history. Right. So it mm-hmm. was debated like because it doesn't mention God explicitly. But sure. within Esther, it says to keep this and to remember Purim and all these other festivals so the Jews took that as um, a means of remembering their history and and things like that so Mm -hmm. there are we have more manuscripts of the Old Testament and New Testament than any other book of antiquity how crazy is that like people think like um compare it to um the Odyssey like in age essentially but there are far more manuscripts of the Old Testament and New Testament than there are of the Odyssey, which I think is so, it's so cool. It like gives me chills thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. And then the criteria for the New Testament is kind of the same as the Old Testament. Um, the first one is that the books are truly the word of God and have about them this self-evidence and quality. Mm-hmm. So there, there's just this authority about them that is undeniable just like the old testament scriptures because the same god inspired the old and the new testament then the second one is certain books were added because they were used in christian worship so Mm -hmm. like the four gospels were used in all church services they were accepted right away like i kind of equate that to like the first five books of the old testament yeah is how they viewed the first four of the new testament of the gospels because that is the foundation of their faith that's you don't have christianity if jesus didn't die and rise again Correct. then the third one was it ties to an apostle so was it written by an apostle or someone closely tied to an apostle so all right. of paul's letters were immediately 
accepted because he was an apostle and he claims apostleship in his letters. Yes. So there was just a whole bunch of like, there's a lot of internal consistency. There's a lot of divine authority written through them. There, right. it, it was written either by an apostle or closely attributed to someone that right. was with an apostle. Right. Yeah, that's all I have on like the criteria and everything else. But if you are interested in learning more about the canon, Kirsten mentioned Michael Kruger. I think his website is just his name, michaelkruger.com or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, I think that's the URL. Or you can type in canon fodder and you can find it that way too. Yeah, and then most of my stuff came from Church History in Plain Language and the Blue Letter Bible. Mm-hmm. And then there's a podcast that my school has. I think it's called Faith Seeking Understanding. If you just type in Phoenix Seminary, um, Peter Gurry, he's really well-known in this area. Yeah, and he's he, cool. he does a whole podcast episode with the president of the seminary. So mm-hmm. that was really, really cool. That was very helpful in this. I think this is a good segue into why the Bible is essential because now we know that we can trust it. So th- why do we need it? And we need it because that is the Christian's foundation of truth. Mm-hmm. The Christian says there is no absolute truth outside of what the Bible deems as truth. Yes. If there is anything claiming to be ultimate authority or ultimate truth and it's contradictory to what scripture tells us, then we don't believe it. Correct. If you're if the Bible is not absolute truth to you, then what are you standing on? Mm-hmm. What do you go back to? What do you? Where do you find your hope? Mm-hmm. If you can't trust the Bible, then what can you trust? The yes. world? Are you, you kidding me? Do you have any standard for anything? Or do you continuously flip-flop on every social is- issue, on everything that may or may not have evidence to back it up? You, you have no standard, so those people are constantly flopping all over the place because they just continue to stumble all over themselves. They have no consistent standard. But the Christian worldview is consistent because it stands on objective truth of scripture. Right, like if you told me 10 years ago that me saying that there are two genders would be offensive to anybody, I would laugh right in your face. Mm -hmm. But now, if you were to tell me that there was only two genders and no one's going to be offended by that, I would laugh right in your face. Because people are so offended by that, even people who are claiming to be Christians. And that is astounding to me. And so you need to know your Bible. Yes. You absolutely need to know your Bible because if you want to be God-honoring, if you want to know what God is trying to say to you or speak to you or what God wants you to do in a certain situation, you're not going to know that by praying if you don't read your Bible because you know God's voice through his word. He doesn't reveal anything to you outside of scripture. Yes. It's closed. Yes. So knowing that you can trust your Bible really leads you and sets you up well to defend it. Which we are called to do. We are called to make it a defense. We should want to know what the word says because it has been preserved for this long. And so many people have lost their lives defending this. Like that story that, that I shared. I got that from Bruce Shelley's book, Church History in Plain Language. Like, man, if people were willing to die for this and we can't even muster up any discipline to read our Bibles every day and to know what God says and we think that the world offers a sufficient amount of truth for us Mm -hmm. and we can integrate that into our Bible, 
Like, how far off are we? How yeah. dare we think that we can bring worldly truths into the Bible? We are not a slave to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. Yes. We are not to be conformed to the world. We're to be transformed by the word. We're yes. supposed to be offering our bodies as living sacrifices. That's right. What is holy, acceptable, and perfect to the Lord. And so... If you're sacrificing your body to the Lord, then you're saying that you're giving yourself up to him and you dare not take that back and give yourself up to the world. You can't sacrifice half yourself to God and half to the world because you can't have two masters. So you have to figure out what you actually believe. And if you believe the world over what the Bible says, that's fine. At least be consistent in it. (laughs) Don't say that you love God and then your actions don't follow suit. And so I'm not trying to like steer off too much from this episode. We're going to talk about social stuff, social issues more in future episodes. But man, knowing your Bible is so, so important because if you don't know it, then you're going to fall for anything. Yes. You will absolutely stumble all the time and you won't be able to stand back up because you won't have solid truth to grab on. Yep. And so, I mean, I fall. I certainly fall. Romans 3.23 we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We yes. have all sinned. And I know that I know what sin is because I know what the Bible says sin is. Yes. And mm-hmm. that is, I think that's the biggest thing is we just don't know what sin is and we don't understand how much God hates it. Yes. And because we don't understand that, we have become so lax as a church, like as a universal church, mm-hmm. and we have not stood up against the evils of this world. Yep. And that's, we are seeing so many issues because of that. So it's really sad. But I have to tell you on the other end, a lot of people are going to listen to you and they're going to hear, well, you must worship that book. You don't (laughs) worship the God of that book. You worship that book. Right. Because all, there's a lot of people in the um, more progressive camp who at least I've heard several pastors say something along the lines of like, we don't worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. <sighs> That's a catchy slogan, but slogans are just shouts of death. So don't listen to it. That is a shout of death. But that's not true. Because this is why the Bible is important. Because we have written within it that the word became flesh and dwelt among men. Throughout the Old Testament, the law is referred to the word of God. In the New Testament, we see Jesus becoming the fulfillment of the law. We see Jesus proclaiming with his mouth the truth of God, the truth of himself. So if you're going to say that we don't worship the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible, I get what they're trying to say. They're trying to say we don't worship this physical book in front of us. And you can... You can idolize theology. You can idolize maybe the practice of reading the Bible. But I would argue that you cannot idolize the content of the Bible because the content of the Bible is Jesus. If Jesus is the word of God, which he claims to be, he is the word that became flesh, then the content of the Bible is Jesus. So if you're saying that you don't obey certain things of scripture because it doesn't really apply to our context now or that's really old school. We don't need that. What you're saying is that you don't obey Jesus. I want that to feel heavy. I want that to feel scary because that's what it is. 
but here's the thing. He's also the same God of grace and peace and of repentance and belief. He just, he wants your obedience, not for salvation, but because he has done the work for you to be saved. Therefore, you can rejoice knowing that your works aren't rooted in your salvation. Like you don't work in order to gain salvation. You have salvation. So your good works are a reflection of who Jesus is to the world. Because God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Your neighbor needs your good work so that the so that others around you can see that the word of God is true, that people can see as Jesus is true. And it reminds me of Second um, Timothy three fourteen through seventeen. If all scriptures breathed out by God and it is what equips you for every good work, then you need scripture in order to do what is good. That's what that's why we need to know scripture because. If you want to know the difference between good and evil, there's only one who is able to define that. But since Genesis 3, every human ever has wanted to take that definition and make it whatever they want it to be. But only God can define that. So yeah, I'm done with my rant. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I got one last thing. Before there was a solidified canon, there were books going around that people would use within services that were contrary to what previous accepted scripture said. Mm-hmm. Some of um, early, man, I really don't want to call them churches. They were not churches, but for lack of better word. F- false gospel groups. Like, yeah, like false, false gospel groups. They were heretical movements, and they were picking different writings to use in their services. Mm-hmm. This was not a practice of the early church. The early church did not affirm these things. These were heretical movements. I cannot stress that enough. Yes. But one of the books that they were reading that they affirmed was Gospel of Thomas. And it opens like, these are the secret sayings that the living Jesus spoke to Didymus Judas Thomas. Uh, jumping down to verse 12. The disciples said to Jesus, we know that you're going to leave us. Who will be our leader? Jesus said to them, No matter where you are, you are to go to James the Just, for whose sake heaven and earth came into being. Heaven and earth were not created for James. They were created (laughs) to give God glory. Yes. Then, verse 13, Jesus said to his disciples, Compare me to something and tell me what I am like. Simon Peter said to him, You are are like a just messenger. Mm -hmm. Matthew said to him, You are like a wise prophet. Thomas said to him, Teacher, my mouth is utterly unable to say what you are like. Jesus said, I am not your teacher. Because you have drunk, you have been intoxicated from the bubbling spring that I have tended. And he took him and withdrew and spoke three things to him. When Thomas came back to his friends, they asked him, What did Jesus say to you? Thomas said to them, If I tell you one of the sayings he spoke to me, you will pick up rocks and stone me, and fire will come from the rocks and devour you. That's even just the first section, or the first sentence of that section is already contrary because Simon Peter has claimed him as the son of God. But then also in this one, he's just a messenger. Right. Already contradictory. Well, there was one that I was researching that um, some false churches also said, I think it was the, the gospel of Barnabas. There was the epistle of Barnabas and the gospel of Barnabas. And one of them was significantly worse than the other. And <laughs> it would it said things like, Jesus said that he wasn't the Messiah. He was like John the Baptist and there to make way for the Messiah. And the true Messiah would come and that would be Muhammad. And that was Oops. being taught in some false churches. And so 
If you don't know what the gospel says, if you don't know that Jesus had said that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, of course you're going to believe that Jesus thought that he was just a good preacher. Mm -hmm. Of course you would think that Jesus would would say that he was just a messenger to the true prophet, to the true Messiah. Yeah. Like, it all goes back to C.S. Lewis' um, liar lunatic lord argument. Right. You... He's one of three. Mm-hmm. And to the Christian, he's Lord. Yes. He is neither lunatic, nor is he a liar. Because that goes outside of his own nature. And he doesn't do anything that is outside of his nature. There's one more verse. I'm going to jump down to 114. <laughs> that just really... It'll grind your gears. <laughs> really says it all. <laughs> Simon Peter said to them, Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. <laughs> Jesus said, look, I will guide her to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Oops. So uh, Jesus is pro-transgender. In case you uh, didn't know. (laughs) That goes against what Jesus says when he asks for his mother to be looked after and cared for. Mm -hmm. When he was on the cross. Yep. And so, not to mention, every encounter he has with a woman is so gentle and tender and kind and heals them. Like, you you can't... You have to know your Bible. And this is so blatantly against what scripture says. And it's kind of like a comedy show to read that and and think that anybody actually believed that. But they did. (laughs) But, I mean, lies don't always start out as blatantly obvious they can start very subtle and if you don't know the depths of your bible you're not gonna you're not gonna catch on to the subtleties of of falsehood that's right and i'm just so passionate about this but i think that's all i have about canon and why knowing your bible is important so please go read your bible that's all start a reading plan you still have time it's beginning of the year still you can catch up do it Yeah. So my encouragement to you guys, our little segment at the end, I'm just going to reiterate what I said in the beginning. My little challenge to you guys is to take a social media fast. Don't go on it for a day. You don't need it. Just 24 hours. In those 24 hours, every time that you're tempted, and you will be tempted, (laughs) read your Bible. Yes. Know the God of the Bible Instead of being anxious or instead of being scared or instead of wondering what the world has in store for us next, read your Bible because God's really clear that nothing happens outside of his control. Yes. I'm reading first and second Peter. You can join me in that or you can pick whatever other book that you want. And whenever you're ready to come back on, let me know how it goes because I'm really interested to see how the Lord use that time to speak to you agreed and to reveal things to you through his word agreed so that's it cool hope you enjoyed it we'll see you guys next week and all glory be to christ bye